This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. This week, we're actually going to live by our name and talk about some very big media news that happened. We were recording this the week before release, so this week. Right, so August is supposed to be the time that everyone goes on vacation, but that hasn't been the case in the television industry this week. No. Let's start with kind of the big elephant in the room, and that's Disney. In their earnings call with investors, they announced that in 2018, they will be launching their own portal. A couple portals. And I think it's too early to talk too much about this. So announcing that there are portals coming and actually seeing what the price point is and what kind of content is going to be available, those are two very different things. On the face of this, it isn't all that surprising. It's clear that the legacy industry is pivoting toward making their content available in some form of internet distribution. And in some ways, I'm remembering back to, I think it was two Augusts ago, where this vacation time was abruptly disrupted by a Wall Street sell-off of media stocks when it first became clear that ESPN was not invincible. Um, And it was that same kind of Disney earnings call that awakened an industry, uh, or a media analyst at least, to the possibility that the way that it has always been was not going to continue to be. You're right that we don't we don't have a complete indication of what's going to be on there, but we do have some. Like, we know there will be ESPN content on there. Do we know what precisely? No. But articles have mentioned Major League Baseball and college sports. We also know that Disney movies are going to be put on there, especially given that they made a point of saying that they are ending their deal with Netflix. All right, let's. There's a lot there already, so let's, so pa- let's backpedal to sports. ESPN, let's, right? Let's go. So, there. what can we assume will be there? Content ESPN and own. So things like Sports Center. It's interesting that they are announcing that there are major league sporting licenses connected to that. But again, let's wait and see what actually happens. Is it one game a week? All sorts of things can happen here because in order for um, someone like a company like Major League Baseball to allow ESPN to distribute content in a portal that will be um, monetized by ESPN, that's a direct threat to MLB's own portal, MLB.com. There are certainly some competitive questions here. Although, is it really a threat? Because ESPN streams a few games a week where MLB.com has everything. I guess my response to that would be, I don't know if it's a threat exactly, given the limitations of the games that are on ESPN, and that these games are all streamed to people with cable subscriptions already. I think that gets back exactly, though, to this point that we're just really uncertain about what is going to be included in the content. And you and I are actively trying to wrap our heads around this as we're talking right Right. now. And again, that price point is really important because if ESPN is going out and getting new rights, getting the digital rights for content that it didn't have digital rights for before, surely that's costing ESPN money and they're a company that's kind of been hemorrhaging in recent months and years. So... It's certainly a forward-looking strategy. Much remains to be seen as to whether or not that's going to be a proposition that seems actually valuable to subscribers. Yeah, I remember talking to Preston Beckman in an interview I did for the Michigan Daily, and one of the things he said was, the portal that's really going to be the portal to end all portals is ESPN. That's going to be the important one. That's going to be the 
kind of one that turns the industry a little bit. Yeah, see, that's where I part ways with, uh, and with great respect uh, for Mr. Beckman, I'm questioning whether there are truly sports fans that want ESPN badly enough to have an array of sports and the cost that will come with it, which will be significant. We're as probably a, talking 15 to 20 a month. The number has been range. 30. Um, really? When this question of, of a la carte has come up before, the number mm-hmm. has been 30 for ESPN. But as opposed to whether or not actually most of the marketplace is fans of discrete sports that would be better served by effectively an a la carte sports service. So back to MLB.com. Uh, or NBA League Pass or NFL Sunday Ticket right. or any of those services. And we'd expect to be seeing all of those sports leagues moving into more aggressive digital distribution as well. But we'll see. Um, but, you know, it, it's not like ESPN is moving into this space at a moment in, that it's in a position of strength. It seems to be kind of backing its way in there a little bit. and Right. It's not calling the shots, let's say, in the same way that it used to call the shots and, and really was, to your point, the powerhouse that, that Beckman notes. Disney is so much more than just ESPN. Um, importantly, it is, and I think these announcements speak to the notion of Disney as a film brand more than also a television company. And so this looks more like a film portal. I would say, than a television portal, which is something that we haven't seen a lot of yet, or at least a lot of that's been particularly successful. So there's talk about something that's roughly Marvel and Lucasfilm branded, so definitely going after a passionate fan base there. Yeah, and their announcement, they didn't clarify how Marvel and Lucasfilm would play a role in this portal. Right. And I think, as you noted, the big related announcement that the Disney films would no longer be first release to Netflix, that's that's a big change for Netflix. I mean, because that was a landmark for Netflix when they got those premium cable rights away from Stars. Not only did that hurt Stars in that they lost one of their two major studios, but that really bolstered Netflix as a place for family movies and family content. Sure, and, and fairly recent content. I mean, I think it, if you look at your Netflix library lately, uh, in terms of their film holdings... Uh, it, they just it, got Rogue One, which is... Eight months ago? Right, but other than the Disney deal, you're not getting content very early. So I think, though, it really illustrates the way in which we are moving through different phases of internet distribution for both the television and the film industry in fairly short chunks of time. And so, you know, this, I think, the number of announcements we've had just this week um, certainly is either an indication that, you know, this is the high point of the current phase, or maybe it's an indication that we're starting into a new phase. I've been calling, you know, where we are the beginning of the middle, um, but it's very clear we're not in the beginning anymore. And the beginning was all about Netflix and licensing content to Netflix and letting Netflix do the work of acculturating viewers to this new way of consumption. And once that happened, um, and I think it was by the end, it's the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, that this next phase that I think we're still in starts out, and we see the legacy industry aggressively moving into creating their own portals, uh, and that actually mirrored Netflix moving into creating originals. So I don't think this is terrible news for Netflix. I think Netflix is in a very different place than it was when it got this deal. It has clearly established itself as a, a content creator in its own right at this point. 
Yeah, we've definitely talked about how the distributors and Netflix used to work hand in hand, but now they're competitors. And this is a, this is probably one of the biggest separations to date of like letting the seams between the two, the connections that bind the two separate. I mean, Netflix, what was it, last week acquired, started acquiring its own IP. They acquired um, major to sub-major, I'm not exactly sure where they fit, comic brand that published, um, I believe, Kingsman, the Kingsman comics. Yes. And they're start, so they're starting to build their own IP, while Disney is kind of starting to take its IP away from Netflix and bring it onto its own. This has been a trend that we've been talking about the throughout pretty much the entire run of our podcast. Right, we see a definite run or trend toward internet distribution, but we see, and especially not just in this announcement, but in the other announcements this week, a lot of different strategies. And I think in order to imagine what a, a Disney portal would look like, U.S. consumers probably aren't aware, but Disney launched a portal in the U.K. and Europe almost uh, two years ago. And it is, it has it has old Disney films, newer Disney films. It also has a uh, number of the shows from the Disney Channel, and so, as, the, as will this portal. Right. And so it's not like Disney is entering into unfamiliar territory. I think in many ways the idea was exactly test this idea out in these certain markets. Uh, meanwhile, they got that sweet deal with Netflix for the U.S. distribution. <laughs> uh, and then you know, I think this is an indication that whatever they were seeing in the European market uh, suggested to them that this indeed was a product that was worthwhile. And I think we also have to underscore that Disney has franchises and brands that are really unlike what any other studio has. And so I, I mean, think they're really uniquely positioned to have portals with clear identities. And, and again, we don't know yet. Is that crucial for a portal to have the, a clear branded identity or is Netflix conglomerated niche strategy uh, just as effective? But uh, it's, it's certainly interesting times. I mean, Disney is its own brand and its own machine. Marvel is its own brand and its own machine. Lucasfilm, ESPN. My question is, is this one portal with smaller parts, or are these separate portals that will be subscribed to separately? I mean, I'm that that's kind of a question that I had coming out of that that I would love to see answered in the future. I think they're most definitely separate. Um, so you don't think it's going to be like the Disney portal and you can subscribe to ESPN and Lucas and Mar and Marvel. I, they're separate fees, right? Okay. I don't I don't think it makes sense that they would bundle together, right? I think mm -hmm. that's what we're moving away from is that notion of bundled content because exactly that. Like you you want to get Disney films for your kid, but you have to pay this big fee for ESPN as well. I don't think that makes sense in in terms of of the current marketplace. The the one area though of of the Disney Empire that was not discussed in this announcement is its television holdings, um, mm -hmm. particularly related to ABC Studios or and mainly the shows that then are created for the ABC Television Network. And I, I can't help but wonder what this might mean for Hulu um, in terms of ABC's part owner or Disney's part owner of Hulu, and that was originally developed as a way to circulate the ABC content um, through internet distributed access. Does this mean Disney's, you know, on the edge of, of creating its own portal more along the lines of CBS All Access, which we can talk about in a second? I think there, there are certainly compelling reasons to think that maybe this suggests that the 
I don't know, the abomination that is Hulu. Um, I call it that because... An abomination? <laughs> there's just no way that you can have three owners and have that work out. That's that's just uh, my what, opinion. you're saying media rivals don't play well with each other? <laughs> Not when there's actually money on the table. So I think we've, we've left that, again, we've left that early phase. We're now in the beginning of the middle where the strategy and the money is real. Um, so on one hand, maybe this looks like uh, the beginning of the end for Hulu. On the other hand... I don't know that an ABC-branded portal could stand on its own. It would probably have to be ABC and free... Even at the Disney television networks as a whole, they've got ABC, they've got Freeform, they've got Disney Channel. All mm-hmm. three of those are very... And Disney Junior. Mm-hmm. All four of those are very separate audiences. Actually, they kind of do go up in age <laughs> very nicely, starting with Disney Junior and ending with ABC. But again, a portal that has programming for many different ages, I, I again, I don't know that that is actually what the portal strategy is about. You know, that's what the cable bundle has been about. So a uh, big question mark there as to what this might mean in terms of Hulu. Let's go a little bit more into kind of how this relates to other portals. Um, One of the first things I thought of when I heard Disney was putting out its own thing was CBS All Access. And CBS was kind of the forerunner to kind of going it alone and actually launching their own we are CBS, this is our portal for you. Right. CBS chose not to join with the others and to become part of Hulu back when it launched in 2007, 2008, before anybody was really streaming anything. Uh, Let's remember when that was. Um, And then came out in 2014 with the announcement that in early 2015, they would launch CBS All Access. And it's, it's been a confusing, unclear portal, let's say, to date. For the most part, when they advertise it, it is in relation to CBS current programming, and it's billed as a way to watch current programming. And so who's that serving? Well, maybe people who have cut the cord and don't want to put up an antenna. Um, To some degree, um, you can watch things sort of in an on-demand fashion that way. So there's that. But it also contains the library of television shows that CBS and Paramount and various other uh, libraries that they've gained through various mergers and acquisitions. I mean, so it's things like Family Ties, which aired on NBC, and the original Beverly Hills 90210, which launched the Fox Network. I mean, the CBS All Access strategy has been pretty much, we have a library, here it is. Um, and so if you're, you're charting the different strategies we have out there, you know, this is just straight up vertical integration. We own it, come access it, as opposed to, let's say, licensing that content to Netflix. Um, and potentially, no one knows the degree to which that's a, a valuable deal and not because of the lack of uh, ratings and information about, you know, to what degree that content helps Netflix. But CBS All Access isn't just the library, and current CBS shows. There's also an original series there with what I bet they're hoping will be their flagship coming in the fall with uh, Star Trek Discovery, the wonderfully abbreviated STD. Yes, and and also, of course, The Good Fight, which was the uh, spinoff from The Good Wife. I have to say, I I haven't figured out what this strategy is uh, in terms of putting exclusive content on CBS All Access. Uh, To me, that looks like a direct cannibalization cause. I mean, who's going to pay twice for CBS? When we look at any of these portals, you know, the first question people are asking is, you know, is are people going to pay for how many of these? And then the second one, you know, is the perception that no one is going to pay twice for things. And so the idea. 
paying, well, I guess we are paying twice because we're paying for cable and then we're right. paying for CBS All Access. Right. And so if you're paying for cable, you're probably paying a 4 to $5 a month broadcast network fee, which is what the cable providers are now using to pay the retransmission fees that are going back mm-hmm. to uh, the broadcast network. So, so yes, um, you you would be paying twice for CBS. But the big announcement uh, that CBS All Access offered this week, again, one that's uh, more speculative than concrete, um, was the announcement that they would be expanding CBS All Access abroad uh, and launching a new digital sports network later this year in the U.S. And so, again, all kinds of questions. What content is actually on that digital sports network? um, And what does launching abroad mean? Looking at CBS's sports holdings, they have the NFL deal, but that the NFL doesn't usually play nice with streaming. We just have to understand these as all different rights. Right. And so the existing rights are television rights. They're mm-hmm. not digital rights. Although they do stream it on CBS All Access. And they have NCAA basketball, which they do stream freely. Right. And actually, NCAA is a great illustration of um, probably you know, CBS's first uh, steps into internet distribution, and they I think they were rewarded quite well for it. But I think we also have to keep in mind how and why the Final Four and, and all of March Madness is a different beast than mm-hmm. many other sports contests. I think one of the reasons internet distribution was such a great thing for March Madness was that there are so many games on at the same time, and in a linear era, CBS had to pick and choose which one to put on. In fact, they have four networks airing the games at the initial start, including the three Turner networks. And that you were still having to make choices about which games to put on, Mm -hmm. and internet distribution, you saw this ramp up in viewership, and a lot of that had to do with all of a sudden these games that hadn't been made available before were available. And so uh, the March Madness story is one that's been very good for CBS. Not only did they have a rise of internet viewers, but they never saw any cannibalization of their television broadcast. And so that, however, as I just noted, is a very peculiar and particular thing, which is different than NFL. And it's probably even different from their, because they do have in-season basketball rights as well with the Big Ten and other conferences. Mm -hmm. And they also have some smaller conference deals uh, in college football. And again, you know, where... Oh, their SEC deal. Excuse me. The SEC is not a small conference, and they have the first-tier rights there. So again, the question is, you know, what is the price point on this? What is the content, actually? And I think the, the effect that this is going to have for the consumers is a whole lot of weighing of new options. And I don't think we should expect to see a stampede toward anything, but what is happening, it, it looks, I think, really disruptive because there's movement away from one thing. You know, and it used to be 90 million plus households had this big cable or satellite bundle. And even that, in the, the decrease isn't, it's still um, in the 80 million household range. It's notable, but it's not ground shaking. Right. And I think the big key is it's not that people are all moving to one place. Um, and so it, it, it makes it very unclear sort of what is happening in the marketplace. Now, one more question with CBS All Access Abroad. Star Trek Discovery, they don't have the international rights to that, but yet they're going to be expanding All Access Abroad without their U.S. flagship? Well, yeah, so this is interesting. Yeah, this I, I didn't see this coming um, in the sense that this potentially disrupts all kinds of existing international deals for CBS-owned content. Um, And so, obviously, anything that's already licensed elsewhere will not be available. 
have been doing some work um, looking at how Netflix was rolled out in different countries and the consumer response. And uh, one of the consistent features around the world is there's just unhappiness about how small the libraries are for the different services in other countries compared to the U.S. service, especially that most of those international services, uh, like Netflix in Japan or Netflix in Australia, uh, don't include House of Cards and Orange is the New Black because those deals were written before I think Netflix really saw its potential as a, a global television service. And they were also underwritten by other studios. Like, you can buy DVDs of House of Cards and Orange is the New Black. Right, for precisely those reasons. They didn't buy up those rights. And so I think CBS is going to be in a similar position as it begins to launch All Access in other countries of not being able to offer this marquee content. And so I guess the thing that's confusing to me is that the exclusives, things like Star Trek Discovery and, and, and The Good Fight, I have to always think fight, about that one. Um, those shows, that, that strategy of some content that's only available on CBS All Access, I feel like that strategy makes much more sense for an international service than it does a domestic service. But again, um, we'll see. Let's transition to another portal. What? There's another portal <laughs> announcement this week? Amanda, how many portals announcements can we talk about? It's only we, Thursday. <laughs> so the Friday drop, um, what are we going to get? Crackle shutting down? Um, it's hard to tell. FX. Yes. FX is, is launching their own portal. In a way, it's called FX Plus. It'll cost $6 a month, launching it in September. But the catch is, it's only available to Comcast customers at launch. At launch. And I think this is something that we will expect to see other major cable providers offering as well. Uh, this is a deal that in some ways mirrors what AMC launched um, earlier in the summer. I was reading some coverage today and interviews with John Landgraf of FX, and he was saying that uh, they chose to wait and sort of separate the announcements because he wanted to really make clear the differences in the service. AMC's library isn't particularly large. It has, I think the estimate in the article was a total of something like 60, 70 hours of programming, whereas FX has either either owns more of its content. For example, it owns all 133 episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia because that's produced by FX Productions. And it owns a lot of its modern content, too, that it's airing Right, now. so anything that, many of the things that have been created since uh, FX Productions was launched. Um, but they've also gone and done the work of buying back rights. And so The Shield, which was produced by Sony, so they had to buy those right back, rights back, so they'll have all 88 episodes of, of The Shield. What they won't have is content that is currently licensed to another portal. But remember, those deals are all set for specific periods of time. Mm -hmm. So let's say once the Americans deal expires with Netflix, it's probably... Amazon. I'm sorry, Amazon. So much to keep straight now. Um, it's probably unlikely that Amazon will get that deal back, but that that content will then come to Hulu. FX. Hulu also has a huge FX presence. They've got Fargo, and they've got a couple of... Don't they have The Strain as well, and a few of their other... Drama launches. Which, again, raises that question about the future of Hulu. And so those arrangements made more sense a week ago um, <laughs> when you're thinking about Hulu as also part owned by 20th Century Fox. Um, so 21st. 21st, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's been, been a good. long week. Yeah. So I think in some ways this, the depth of this portal, I think in combination with 
the specificity of the FX brand. And I think FX has developed a certain kind of television. I think to me, FX Plus Portal looks a little bit more like HBO um, than Mm -hmm. some of the other services out there. Well, and I bet that has to do with the content that FX puts out. I mean, one of the consistent answers I give to what's the best network on television FX. It's because they have, you know, Fargo. They have the Americans. They had justified when that was on the air. Um, Archer remains remarkably consistent and remarkably weird. So if you're coming late to the, the FX party, uh, this, the FX Plus portal is a, is a great way to work your way through these libraries of great programs, commercial-free. Um, I think the other question, though, of like who is this service for? And I think the answer is the person who is cutting their big cable subscription, who recognizes that they only want these handful of things. Now, when we say Comcast customers, we're not necessarily talking about Comcast TV customers. This includes the internet subscribers as well, just to clarify that. Yes, that's a good point. I mean, so, so these are people who potentially are ceasing to be Comcast video service providers. And so why, you might ask, why would Comcast want this? Well, we have to remember that those people are probably provided service, internet service by Comcast as well. And there are plenty of reasons to imagine that this is actually going to work out quite well for Comcast. And one big question that hasn't been answered in any of the coverage I've seen is, what's happening to the $6 a month? In some ways, this looks a little bit like the arrangement that cable has always had, and that if any of that $6 is staying with Comcast, that's notable. It might be worthwhile. Um, It might be that... uh, Fox isn't having to build any kind of customer service interface, and so it's Comcast that's going to do that work, which would justify some money staying with them. Question. Mm-hmm. Or does Comcast take a cut of something like HBO? Oh, yes. Okay. Historically, half of the subscriber fee has stayed with the cable service provider, which is why, which is one of the reasons why HBO Now was such an interesting launch, because that would be a way for HBO to stop sharing that subscription funding. I mean, and let's not downplay how difficult it is to develop a direct-to-consumer infrastructure. And, and that's, we actually, many of the, the conglomerates haven't done that yet. Many are marketing their services initially through Amazon, Apple, and some of the other technology companies. Or in the case of Disney, they bought Bamtech. Yes, which is also a this week. While we're, while, we're, <laughs> while we're on this week. Uh, uh, yes. Another, what, $1.3 billion to buy a larger share? Don't, do they own 75% now? They own the controlling share, yes. I think, is all that's, uh, I think. I think it may be closer to 85, but yes. Um, so, so yes, you can you could buy your infrastructure. Although I think a lot of that is just straight up technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, although technology is infrastructure right. for these services, well, I mean things like billing, um, having someone who answers the phone when you call to say that it's not working, uh, that kind of so c- thing. customer support yes. and that sort of thing. So all of this cycling back, um, so it's not clear what is Comcast's role in these portals at launch. Um, and and the, the truly ironic, and it's very cynical of me to assume this, but in many ways, launching services like this and Comcast's support of it, this is merely recreating the economic relationships of cable, right? <laughs> Where these... Companies are not just being paid by subscribers. They're being um, paid by Comcast. Well, it's actually reversing it, potentially. Comcast is getting paid by the company. Comcast. I'll let you say it. All right. (laughs) So the way it works now, 
is that FX actually gets a check from Comcast every mm-hmm. month for a certain amount of money based on how many homes the service is available to. This is potentially the cable service provider's dream. It's a reversal of that, where you still have consumers who are paying for the internet service. They're probably paying more if they're cutting their cable and they're losing their bundle discount. They may even be paying more because they're now using more internet data and they're getting bumped into a higher tier of uh, Although it takes a data. lot of data to get bumped into that higher it's tier. It's one terabyte. It's right now, but if you go to Ultra 4K, it's gonna happen very quickly. He's, it's it's a long game, Alex. It's a long game. Yeah. All right, so we've got all that. And now, potentially, instead of paying FX for subscribers, maybe they're getting a chunk of this five ninety nine. It's all quite fascinating, and I, I think we're going to be very much keeping an eye on this service as it launches, and we'll see if we know how many subscribers it gets. We might not mm. find out. Um, CBS All Access especially has been coy with subscriber numbers. I think they're recently talking about something like $4 million, um, just in the last, and I think that earnings call. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, keeping in mind two things. On the one hand, $2 million, $3 million, $4 million, those are tiny numbers compared to $95 million, which was, let's say, the peak cable distribution of FX. Although, assuming it's the cord-cutting number, four, getting $4 million of those cord-cutters back, that's... That's, that's valuable. So on the one hand, those little numbers might not seem important. Um, But again, this isn't about a complete reversal of the industry. It's not that cable is going away. It's still going to be very profitable. There are many people who are not going to cut the cord and are going to continue to use the old economics. I would even say a majority probably aren't going to cut the cord. Yes, probably in the next decade. it, It may still be a majority. And so these services are not failures if they only have, you know, 5 million subscribers. And so it's important to sort of understand what the actual benchmarks are. So speaking of failures, let's have a little moment of silence for CISO. The portal announced that it will be shutting down later this year. It's it's already started selling off its original content. Um, a couple of things were picked up. There's still a couple of things that need homes. So let's quickly um, recap what CISO was. It was with us so briefly. Uh, CISO was a portal launched by, owned by NBC, Comcast, Universal, in whichever order we're supposed to say those now. What was This was a really interesting strategy to me, and I have to say, I'm not sure that CISO rolling up is about strategy um, or a strategy failure. So I so? I've, well, first let me explain why I found it interesting compared to some of the others that we've talked about. So CISO's brand was comedy, you know, where you would turn if you want to laugh. Like, that was what their goal was. And they built um, NBC Universal library content at first, like Parks and Recreation, I think, was one of their flagships. Right. And so because they were from a conglomerate that had a studio that had a whole bunch of content, they did rely on that. But they, they did more than what I would say has been the CBS All Access strategy. They licensed. CISO has been the only U.S. streaming availability of Monty Python um, in its existence. Uh, And as you noted, they did create originals that were very much on brand and were things that, you know, probably could have been created at another streaming service, but were probably too edgy for any uh, linear television service. I wish I'd watched a single one of them. Well, you could probably still subscribe and work your way right through them (laughs) because you don't have to stick to a schedule. 
So to me, I thought this was a very interesting kind of hybrid strategy, taking advantage of the library, but augmenting it enough to actually establish a brand and, and a clear value proposition to viewers. So I'm not convinced that this is, that comedy is a failing brand, that that's not how portals could successfully be So you don't see the comedy niche as something that, the, you don't see the lesson of this, that comedy niche will not succeed in school. Correct. To me, and I'm just reading sort of between the lines in different places, I think Comcast, this was a let's try this. And I think at a bigger corporate level um, that there's been a pivot. Um, and, you know, these deals with AMC and FX suggest this. And maybe this is this, I mean, this is a curious shakeup in, to the degree that really until now, the internet distributed space has been about licensing and taking content away from its original distributor. And what the AMC and FX deals do is they really reassert that original licensor identity. Uh, and so all of the work that has gone into building FX as a brand and AMC as a brand is being leveraged in these portals as opposed to something like the destination for comedy or the destination for, I don't know, sci-fi. So we'll, we'll see. I, I, I don't think this is the last we've seen of a genre-branded portal, but it really continues to illustrate the importance of content ownership and the role vertical integration is, is going to play, it seems. And one more story before we go. Hulu posted a $353 million loss in 2017 so far. Yes, that's a lot of money. So what is this about? Uh, this is about original content is really expensive. Especially something like The Handmaid's Tale. It's really expensive and it's really you know, of unpredictable success. And certainly I think who's got to feel great about what the buzz around The Handmaid's Tale and the attention that it's brought. But as the naysayers that look at Netflix and the amount of money Netflix is spending, you know, continue to argue about that company, it's just a big question mark. How long can these companies continue to put this kind of money into them? And uh, again, to go back to your comments about uh, John Landgraf at, at TCA, you know, that's certainly the thing that he was bemoaning, um, was really just the feeling that the, that the playing field is not the same in terms of the access to money for content creation that's didn't he available. Say, didn't he say, like, streaming is getting blown in the face with money? It, it was a line, something along those lines? It, it, it was, yes. It was, it was not a pleasant experience that one, one would have with a whole bunch <laughs> of money um, not actually being available to them. So I think this week's news has a lot of question marks for Hulu, and I think these losses are just another one, uh, especially if we're starting to see some new realignment and the organization of portals from within these conglomerates that heretofore had been playing together um, in order to make Hulu a thing. And on that optimistic note, it's time to move on to the last segment of each and every show, What We're Watching This Week. Amanda, what are you watching? I finished The Leftovers last night. Oh, yes! I, ha I had one goal, which was to finish before vacation, and I <laughs> achieved it. Um, and again, in completely the opposite of, of my multi-month trek through This Is Us. You know, I think there were just a mere ten episodes. Now, as I was, and I... What, I, the final season? Yeah. That was eight. It was eight, yes. Yeah. It went very quickly. I think I did it in a week then. Um, 
Now, I had this question as I was watching my Twitter feed um, when people were watching it in real time, and you know, people were saying things like, I, I couldn't watch more than one episode a week, and oh, it would just destroy me. And I, and I worried about my sanity and whether I'd be okay. And, and indeed, I was. And, and I, I, I feel actually, I feel affirmed in my choice of watching it, you know, basically one or two episodes a night. And uh, yeah, no, that it lived up to, I think, all of the, the hype I was, expe- or it wasn't hype, um, the extensive amount of critical praise it received. And um, it is certainly something that I will be continuing to ponder. So that's that is one of the categories of great TV in yeah. my mind. The things that leave me pondering. There's one question I really want to ask you, but it's spoilery. Did she go through? Did she not go oh. through? Or does it not friggin' matter? Hmm. I will have to think on that. I think she went through, but my uh, answer to that question is it doesn't matter because it is works either true. way. This is true. Um, I, th- I thought the leftovers was just excellent. That final season, if it's. It's my top show of the year. Yeah. It's, it's, it's on the all-time pantheon for me. Um, yeah, it's a complicated one. I, I, I really do feel the complaints about it being shut out of the Emmys were uh, fairly registered. The, the they acting, didn't nominate Carrie Coon! The acting and the writing, I thought. Her eyes are an emotional weapon. They are. <laughs> um, Alex, what have you been watching? Not something I loved as much as The Leftovers. I've been watching Glow. I finally... Finished it last night. Um, it took about three weeks to get through, which is a lot, That's a lot for, for a, a ten-episode comedy. And I thought it was fine. You know, it didn't quite live up to the hype. It was fun. It was enjoyable. It was a diversion. I didn't love it. I, I liked Alison Brie. I didn't love the show. You know, and I think what's interesting about that comment is, and this is the thing that I think should worry Netflix, is that I think that's often the takeaway. Like... The things that Netflix is creating, better than average, better than above average. But I don't know that Netflix has found that kind of haunting and, and really resonant show yet. And, and, and maybe Parts of Orange is the New Black were parts. <laughs> I'm so you know, funny. what I've seen of The Crown, I really yeah, liked. That's true. But like Stranger Things, I oh. also, you know, I really uh, like Stranger okay, Things. Was that. it one of the best dramas ever? No. Is Barb getting an Emmy nomination friggin' ridiculous? <laughs> well, that's, that's a matter for another day. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the link at the top of the page. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you do subscribe to us there, please rate and review us. It helps other listeners find our show. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks.